Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 4, Episode 1. Last week, I wrapped up the history in and around the book of Exodus, after close to two years' worth of work. If you missed that episode, well, really, any of that chapter, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning the fourth chapter of the podcast, with a summary of the first ten chapters of the book of Leviticus, And with that, let's get started. After far more time in Exodus than I expected, I finally made it to the book of Leviticus, which should not take close to two years to work my way through. I'm hoping that by now you know that the book is named after the priestly tribe of ancient Israel, the Levites, with their first high priest, Moses' brother Aaron. The name also relates to the content of the book, specifically the rules and laws for the priest, which should give you an inkling of what's to come. The first several chapters, well, chapters 1 through 7, and also 11 through 27, are God's speeches to Moses. Moses then repeats these to the Israelites, all of this occurring after the exodus from Egypt and the events on Mount Sinai. So, after the book of Exodus, which makes sense. Thinking back to the last episode, towards the end of Exodus, God tells the Israelites to depart the area around Mount Sinai. The events of Leviticus are thought to have taken place during the month to 45 days between the completion of the tabernacle, seen in Exodus chapter 40, and the Israelites' departure from Sinai, found in the first chapter of the next book, Numbers. Leviticus covers several primary themes. First, God wants to be with his people, and God has called his people to be with him. But they can't, since they are unholy and not at all like him. If they were in his presence while being unholy, they would die. Not even Moses, the leader of the Israelites, is clean enough. In order to bridge this gap, God designed a method for the Israelites to enter into his presence and to live as his holy people. But the process is very complicated, involved many different rules, sacrifices, and offerings, all having to do, generally, with life and death. Death and its associations make a man impure before God, the ultimate life-giver. The first of these laws concerns sacrifices and offerings, So, animal and grain offerings for specific purposes, such as peace, and as a redemption from sin. And do note that in that time and place, livestock and food was exceedingly valuable, with populations generally teetering on the edge of starvation. Giving up livestock and grain for a sin or burnt offering would instill how costly it was to come into God's presence and how severe sin truly was in their relationship with God. The hope was that an Israelite would see it as a great privilege given by a loving God that provided him a means to be made pure and to be able to enter into his presence. Essentially, there are four types of offerings. The burnt offering, where an animal is sacrificed. The grain offering, where grain, frankincense, and oil are mixed and baked. Of course, the output was unleavened bread. Next was the peace offering, sometimes called an offering of well-being or thanksgiving. 
These were given in response to God's unexpected or unsought generosity. And finally, there was the sin offering, which could be either grain or animal. There will be more on all of these later in this episode. In the book, there are also instructions for priests. Then the institution of the priest, still Aaron and his sons. All of this in the first nine chapters. Chapter 10 is a break in the rules with a story of how two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, how they offended God and what happened to them due to the offense. It's thought this passage was placed in the text to show that the position of the priest was not without risk. Chapters 11 through 15 concern cleanliness. Well, really, uncleanliness. Unclean animals, diseases, discharges, all sorts of things viewed as dirty. Then the Day of Atonement is touched on again, followed by rules concerning everyday holiness, rules about crime, more rules concerning the tabernacle, again the sabbatical and jubilee years, rules, and more rules. Overall, God is telling the Israelites and their priests how to make offerings in the tabernacle and how to behave while encamped around the holy tent sanctuary. Overall, the instructions of Leviticus emphasize ritual, legal, and moral practices, not really religious beliefs. They reflect the creation story in Genesis, where God wishes to commune with humans. The book teaches that faithful performance of the sanctuary rituals are steps to make that possible. But the instructions require that the sinful people avoid such sin, along with avoiding impurity. Of course, they'll fail at this, so Leviticus provides offerings and rituals to gain forgiveness for their sins. Along the same lines, there is the necessary purification from impurities. All of this to allow God to live in the tabernacle, and in doing so, dwell in the midst of the people. In essence, Leviticus tells us of how with the ancient Israelites, God could not be in the presence of anything or anyone impure. Therefore, he made a way for his people to temporarily become pure in order to be with him. The Torah has more rules than can be accurately counted, or at least agreed upon. According to the 12th century Jewish scholar Maimonides, there are 613 such rules in the Torah, and either 246 or 247 are in Leviticus, nearly half. Leviticus ends, well, almost ends, by telling the Israelites they must choose between the law and prosperity on the one hand, or on the other, horrible punishments, the worst of which will be expulsion from the land God is about to give them. And I'll get to these rules and rituals a bit more as I go through the chapters, but do know, and you may have already noticed this, many of these are going to be redundant with Exodus, and I'll try to avoid the redundancy as much as possible. Also, as I work through the sequential summary of the chapters, it should quickly become apparent that there is much less outside history to cover with Leviticus. Overall, I expect that this chapter of the podcast will take far less time than the previous. At a minimum, I don't have to cover the history of the Egyptian Empire. But before working through the chapter-by-chapter -chapter summary, a bit about the book itself. Leviticus is part of the Torah. It would be elevated to its current level during the Second Temple Period, 
Around that same time, the Samaritans also held it in high esteem. Its influence can be seen in the Dead Sea Scrolls, to the point that fragments of 17 manuscripts of Leviticus were found in the scrolls. These fragments date to the 3rd and 1st centuries BC, so before Christ. There are other records from that era that also refer to Leviticus. Fast forwarding a century or three, Jews and Christians have not observed Leviticus's instructions for animal sacrifices since the 1st century AD, but for different reasons. After the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, Jewish worship focused on prayer and the study of the Torah. Despite this, Leviticus remains a primary source of Jewish law, and is even the traditional first book children learn in the rabbinic system of education. As for Christianity, the New Testament is built on the sacrificial idea from Leviticus, but with Christ as the high priest who offers his own blood as a sin offering. So, no need for Christians to sacrifice animals. But that's not all. Christians hold that the New Covenant outlined in the New Testament replaces the Old Testament's ritual laws, including those in Leviticus. So, most Christians don't observe Leviticus's rules regarding diet, purity, and agriculture. Now, having said that, where the line is drawn between what ritual and moral regulations are and are not observed varies greatly among many Christian practitioners. So, that's the overview, which gets me to the first chapter. It begins with God telling Moses to give the people of Israel instructions. This is in addition to all of the things he told Moses to do in the second half of Exodus. The first set of instructions concerns the burnt offering. It's called this because, well, like we saw in Exodus, an animal is slaughtered and burned in sacrifice. Unlike Exodus, the whole animal is burned on the altar. This included herd animals, presumably oxen or cattle, sheep or goats, and birds. In this system, the wealthy would offer a cow, middle class sheep or goats, and the poor a dove or a pigeon. Interestingly, this isn't a command to do animal sacrifices, so the presumption is that they were already doing them. This is better understood as instructions on how to do them correctly, which helps to put all the directions in context. Animals being flayed, entrails and legs washed in water, the fat and the head placed directly on the wood, and many more. This burnt offering was for the purposes of atonement, there is an allusion in the text to Adam, with God using an animal hide in Genesis to hide Adam's nakedness. And the word atone, as in atonement, can also be translated as covering, as in clothing. Under certain circumstances, as outlined in Among Other Places, Chapter 7, where the priest could keep the animal's hide for their personal use. In most cases, though, the entire animal is to be burnt. And, unlike Genesis, where God casts the first duo from the garden, in this case, the animals are used in a fashion to bring the man back in. In the text, you'll also see that the animal to be sacrificed has to be without blemish, which can be interpreted as flawless, but in Hebrew, the word can also mean without injury, which makes a certain amount of sense, as offering up an injured animal as a sacrifice 
would be offering one of diminished value. And the atonement, the sacrifice, is supposed to be a true sacrifice, so lesser value won't do. And that's it for chapter 1. As for new topics to be covered in later episodes, there aren't any. Chapter 2 kicks off with grain offerings. This is similar to what was covered in Exodus, but here we see a small portion in the New Revised Standard. It's called a token portion is for the offering. This part is to be burned up to smoke. The larger portion is for the priest to eat. And the people are given options on how to prepare the unleavened bread. In an oven, on a griddle, in a pan, many options. But besides leavening, it also couldn't have honey. But it could have frankincense and salt. The salt is thought to symbolize the permanent covenant between God and the people of Israel. In this sense, think of salt as a preservative. Outside of this context, it's been proposed that the covenant being established here resembles contemporary treaties known as Suzarin Vassal Treaties, which is a topic I'll get to in a future. For now, just know that they were agreements between parties with unequal power. Lords and vassals are the ancient equivalent of it. Essentially, protection and money in exchange for servitude and loyalty. In the sense of the ancient Israelites, sacrifice and worship for living by the rules, and, as some believe, crop yields. We tend to view these as transactional relationships. You give me this, and I'll give you that. A transaction. And that's it for chapter 2. Chapter 3 begins with the peace offering, and this is a peace as in a sense of no war. You may also see it written as an offering of well-being, the fellowship offering, or the shared offering. Why so many names? A completely flexible Hebrew root word, the same root word that is used for the word shalom. As for this offering, it was to be oxen, cattle, sheep, or goats. No birds allowed. Unlike the burnt offering, when only male animals were to be sacrificed, this offering allows both male and females, and not the whole animal. Only the kidneys, the lobe on the liver, and certain kinds of fat. The remaining parts can be consumed, assumed to have been eaten by the priest and everyone else. And note that the sacrifices found in the first three chapters of Leviticus are considered voluntary. Nothing else is in chapter 3, and no real topics to be covered later. You should now be seeing why Leviticus will be much shorter than Exodus. With so many rules, the 613, they will get broken, and atonement will come from sacrifices, blood and grain sacrifices, which gets me to the sin offerings of chapter 4. While the previous chapters were voluntary offerings, hence the word offer, chapter 4 is not as voluntary. If you sin, then you sacrifice for atonement, even if the sin was unintentional, Bulls, goats, sheep, depending on who is guilty of what. Very similar to what was covered in the previous chapters, with the blood of the animal being spread on the horns of the altar within the tent of meeting. The rituals of the sin sacrifices tend to be more complex than the previous offerings. All of the detail of this can be found in the chapter, but I'll keep moving along. Chapter 5 is a continuation of the sin offerings. 
Sometimes you'll see this labeled as an offering of reparation. The first part of the chapter gives a selection of offenses that can lead to such a sacrifice. Touching an unclean animal, or the carcass of an unclean swarming thing. Even if you are unaware of it at the time, when you do become aware, it's time for the offering. The same goes for coming into contact with what's labeled as human uncleanness. For either bad or good purposes, there are other infractions, but I don't plan on covering all 613 or so rules, just enough so that you get the idea. All of these offenses lead to the offering of a female sheep, if one is affordable. Otherwise, two doves or pigeons will do. And if those are not affordable, then a tenth of an ephah of choice flour. I covered this unit of measure a few weeks back in Chapter 3, Episode 82. The second half of five concerns offerings with restitution, which is almost what it sounds like. Almost. Restitution must be made plus 20%. What requires this restitution? Corrupting something that's holy, which would require the sacrificing of a realm, along with enough money to repair whatever was damaged, plus 20%. And that's it for Chapter 5. Moving right along. Chapter 6 begins with a continuation of the reparation part of Chapter 5. A list of more crimes requiring the full restoration, plus 20%. Property crimes like theft and dishonest financial practices. The same goes for finding someone else's lost article, then lying about it. These things are getting really specific. The rest of the chapter, well, really next several chapters, are very specific instructions on how the offerings are to occur from how the priest should dress to what to do with the ashes. And much of this is redundant with Exodus. The balance is essentially an expansion on previous instructions. How to do the burnt offering, the grain offering, the offering from priest when they are anointed, and how to conduct the sin offering. All in all, from chapter 6 to 16, instructions on 10 different types of sacrifices and offerings. After chapter 6, there are instructions on the reparation and peace offerings. The remaining five instructions concern impurities. Impurities around animals, giving birth, skin diseases, and personal discharges. That last one is a bit more specific in the text, but I'll let you find and read that one on your own. And this is likely beginning to feel redundant, even within the confines of the book of Leviticus itself. After all, haven't we been told of these offerings earlier? In this case, just a few chapters earlier. The easy answer is yes, but from a different perspective. The earlier perspective was of the person who would be compelled to make the offering due to their personal transgressions. The second rendition is from the perspective of the priest charged with conducting the ritual. Embedded in this are a few interesting tidbits. In the case of some of the offerings, the specific priest who slaughters the animal gets the parts left over after the burning for his own personal consumption. With many of the other offerings, the leftovers are split among all the priests. This makes me believe that this assignment was highly sought after. Other offerings are split among all the priests, but none of the meat is to be given to the priest's family. 
We're also told that after an animal is sacrificed or grain is offered, the remaining portion is holy, and eating them, or even touching them, makes the person who does so holy too. There are other rules too. The sacrificed animal or food must be eaten on the day of the offering, or the day after, but not two days after. If too much time passes, it morphs from being holy to being unclean, as does anything that comes into contact with the now spoiled foodstuff, which is just good sanitary food storage practices, especially in the millennia before refrigeration. There are other rules. Fat from oxen, sheep, or goats cannot be eaten. Fat from animals that die on their own or are killed by other animals can be used for purposes other than eating. This may allow such fat to be used for soap or other personal hygiene purposes, but believe it or not, that's a bit debated. God then tells Moses to assemble all of the priests along with their vestments, by this time having been sewn together by the seamsters and seamstresses, exactly as prescribed in Exodus. There are also the offerings of a bull, two rams, and unleavened bread, all occurring at the entrance to the tent of meeting. It was then that he consecrated the priest, like was laid out in Exodus. New priestly uniforms, well, vestments, sacrificing of animals, smearing of blood, all of it, for seven days. On the eighth day, they were officially priest, and Aaron now gets to lead the rituals. All of this building to a climax, found at the end of chapter 9, where, quoting, Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting, and then came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. End quote. Then there was a break in the action, found in chapter 10. Two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were quite naturally priests. In the first sentence of the chapter, they commit a capital offense. Instead of using fire from the altar to burn the incense, they brought in fire from somewhere else and placed it in the altar. This was against God's direct commands. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Aaron was silent, presumably surprised and overcome. After their deaths, Moses told Aaron something that likely could have gone without saying, but needed to be said anyway. Moses told him that the priest must respect God and follow his commands. Moses then instructed Aaron's cousins, Mishael and Elzaphon, to carry the bodies away from the camp. Right after the bodies are carried out, Moses tells Aaron and his two remaining living sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, not to mourn the deaths, otherwise they too would be struck dead, along with God's wrath impacting the rest of the congregation he did get permission for other Israelites to mourn their deaths. Moses imposes more rules on the priest, specifically, no alcohol in the tent of meeting. This was so they could recognize what was clean and unclean, and also teach the people God's laws. All of this thought to be more difficult if they had drunk wine, or other alcohol. The chapter concludes with a not-so-fun argument between Moses and Aaron, 
Aaron's living sons refused to eat from a sin offering as part of atonement following their brother's deaths. And Moses lost his temper over this. Aaron argued that it would have been unwise for his sons to have eaten the offering, as the tabernacle had been left in an unholy state by the transgressions of the now dead pair. Moses would end up agreeing with Aaron, so all was well. It's thought that after this, the priests set about cleaning and re-sanctifying the tabernacle. And that's it for chapter 10. And a good stopping point for this week's episode. But before the outro, a quick review of the single topic to be covered later. Just Caesar and Vassal Treaties, 10 chapters and one topic, which will take up less than a single episode. This chapter is already looking much, much shorter than the chapter on Exodus. And that's it for this week. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the summary of Leviticus chapter 11. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.